Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, U.S. corporate news media's initial response to Israel's terror campaign against Palestinians unleashed in the wake of the October 7th attack by Hamas was characterized, broadly speaking, by legitimation, a rhetorical blank check for whatever Israel might do. Israel, the New York Times editorial board said, quote, is determined to break the power of Hamas, and in that effort, it deserves the support of the United States and the rest of the world, close quote. We are more than three months into that effort. The death toll for Palestinians is conservatively, as we record January 18th, over 24,000 people. The UN Secretary General calls Gaza a graveyard for children. So how does the Times assertion that, quote, what Israel is fighting to defend is a society that values human life and the rule of law, unquote, stand up now? We're talking this week with media critic, activist, and teacher Greg Shupak. He teaches English and media studies at the University of Guelph Humber in Toronto, and he's author of the book The Wrong Story, Palestine, Israel, and the Media from OR Books. That's coming up, but first a look back at some recent press. According to an early January New York Times article, the immigration situation has put President Biden at odds with local Democratic leaders who want a tougher border policy. But as Ari Paul uncovered for FAIR.org, the evidence of local Democrats morphing into Trumpists on the border is scant to non-existent. The so-called migrant crisis, the increase in refugees at the U.S. southern border, has been seized on by Republicans as a line of attack against Biden as he runs for re-election, as well as a way to cause chaos in Democratic strongholds. That latter motive exemplified by Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Florida Ron DeSantis, their clever move of shipping unsuspecting asylum seekers to Democratic cities. In a front-page, above-the-fold piece headlined, Biden Faces Pressure on Immigration and Not Just from Republicans, Times reporters Michael Scheer and Miriam Jordan lead by saying that Democratic mayors and governors are applying growing pressure on Biden to curb record numbers of migrants crossing into the United States. The article concludes by saying that the administration's willingness to speed up the deportation process, quote, would be a huge departure from the positions taken by most Democrats, close quote, but that the dynamics have changed. The paper acknowledges that, for the most part, these Democrats are not calling for the kind of severe border restrictions that Republicans are demanding, but that's not how the piece is framed. As Paul notes, the piece begins and ends by saying that reporting shows that Biden is under pressure from both Republicans and Democrats to take more anti-immigrant attitudes, both at the border and toward undocumented immigrants generally. The fact that that isn't the reality, that even the piece itself shows, makes it an exemplar for criticism. 
The first Democratic politician to be quoted is Mayor Mike Johnston of Denver, whose city has been struggling to house a growing number of incoming migrants. He told NBC News that his solution rested on expediting work authorizations. And he's quoted in The Times saying, quote, this is actually a solvable problem if we had work authorization, federal dollars and a coordinated entry plan. Close quote. The piece likewise cites Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson saying that cities are simply unequipped to handle the situation. Rather than demand enhanced law enforcement against migrants, he asked for cities to receive more federal aid. Like Johnston in Denver, Johnson pointed his ire less at Biden and more at Abbott, saying the Texas governor is determined to continue to sow seeds of chaos. Finally, the article quotes Democratic Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey, who did make a bland and unspecific comment about border security, but linked it to federal help for local governments to address the issue. There was one Democratic politician quoted by the paper with a genuine anti-immigrant stance, New York Mayor Eric Adams, who recently sued the bus companies— who are transporting the migrants into the city, and whose top advisor has called on the federal government to close the borders. Yet Adams himself has stated, as recently as October, quote, we believe the borders should remain open. That's the official position of the city, close quote. In short, available evidence shows that Democratic leaders recognize the fact that immigration is a federal matter, and that Abbott's human trafficking program isn't just a cruel stunt for the migrants involved, but also a drain on municipal resources in blue cities. In response, they want federal assistance. And there's no mystery about this. The Associated Press reported months ago that the mayors of Chicago, Denver, Houston, Los Angeles, and New York sought federal help in managing the surge of migrants they say are arriving in their cities with little to no coordination, support, or resources from the administration. That is a far different political position than Republicans' official policy of xenophobia and closed borders. But that didn't stop the Time story from asserting in its second paragraph that, quote, a clear-cut ideological fight between Democrats and Republicans has become bipartisan demands for action, close quote, falsely suggesting some sort of meeting of the minds. As Paul says, the Times could have easily written a straightforward story, reporting that local Democratic leaders demand more federal help when it comes to immigrants. Instead, with sloppy reporting and perplexing misframing, featured prominently in a Saturday print edition in the paper, the Times paved the way for a dangerous anti-immigrant backlash. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. The New York Times has recently published op-eds by journalist Megan Stack, who calls out U.S. officials' glib dismissal of the International Court of Justice case brought by South Africa against Israel. Meritless she says, seems to be the agreed-upon term. The paper also ran columnist Michelle Goldberg's America Must Face Up to Israel's Extremism, 
where she criticized attempts by the Biden administration to draw a bright line between statements from Israeli officials that their open goal is the ethnic cleansing of Gaza and those of Prime Minister Netanyahu, to whom she notes America continues to give unconditional backing. Better than a poke in the eye, do op-eds and critical comments below the fold represent meaningful change in U.S. corporate news media's approach to Israel-Palestine? We're joined now by Greg Shupak. He teaches English and media studies at the University of Guelph-Humber in Toronto, and he's author of The Wrong Story, Palestine, Israel, and the Media from OR Books. Welcome back to Counterspin, Greg Shupak. Hi, thanks for having me back. Well, I know that you have a long view of Western news media coverage of the occupation of the human rights of Palestinians. So I wanted to start by asking your thoughts on the present, like January 18th moment. It feels like the sheer scale of the horror in Gaza, plus the International Court of Justice case submitted by South Africa, are forcing something Long-serving narratives are being strained, but maybe that's me looking at social people-to-people media, and I know better than to expect real epiphanies from, from corporate media. What is your sense of the adequacy of the relationship of news media to reality right now, and are you seeing any change? I'm not seeing much significant change. I, you mentioned, for example, the South African case. And if you go to, say, uh, look through the Washington Post's opinion editorial pages and just sort of search South Africa and genocide, Israel, whatever key terms you want to string together, you'll find that you'll basically get a range of opinion where the spectrum is from Max Boot on one hand really being frothing in rage about South Africa accusing Israel of genocide and then at the other end of the spectrum, you get Fareed Zakaria saying, well, it's not genocide, but maybe it's disproportionate. So you don't get a lot of admission of the fact that there's really strong evidence for this genocide accusation. That's one example of how the, the most current events in Palestine and in the region, in fact, are being covered. There's relatedly pretty strong endorsements in the Post again, for instance of the uh, bombings of Yemen aimed at, uh, mm-hmm. ostensibly aimed at Ansar Allah, which are typically referred to as the Houthis. So an endorsement of kind of broadening of U.S. and its allies' violence to even more theaters in the region. I'd also point out that I feel like, and I don't know, this may be more of a blessing than anything, um, but I feel like there's less attention in some ways than there ought to be, given the scale and pace of the massacres in Gaza. So I, as far as I can tell, there's not been a New York Times editorial on, you know, relating substantively in any way to Gaza since December 8th. And, you know, that might not be a bad thing because it's sort of sparing us from having to be subjected to what the New York Times' editorial board has been saying about Gaza when they've written on it. But that's quite a long gap over a month when you consider that we're dealing with the upward of 30,000 Palestinian deaths in just about four months now. One thing that makes me 
think of is the way that U.S. news media are so U.S. centric. It's a joke, you know. Um, mm-hmm. There can be an earthquake in Indonesia that kills five thousand people, and the headline will be four Americans killed." You know, <laughs> I, I, I yeah. guess that's different in Canada, but. U.S. citizens who rely on the news won't know the history, not just of other countries, but of the U.S. relationship to those countries. So events seem to come from nowhere and narratives are are easier to sell. The lack of history in the media is, is playing in here. Absolutely. That's really been pretty central with the um, coverage uh, as it regards to the uh, Yemenis who have been enforcing the uh, or attempting to enforce shipping blockade on Israel to right. stop the assault on Gaza. The coverage has really done little to mention at all, and even less to mention accurately, the role that the U.S. and other allies, including Canada and the U.K., have played in really obliterating Yemen from, well, since at least the Saudi UAE attacks on the country, you know, which went from 2014 until a sort of tentative truce just over a year ago. Mm -hmm. That's pretty crucial context to understand not only the sort of position that the movements in Yemen, specifically in Allah, have taken with regard to the Western powers that are attacking them, but also in just making clear how obscene it is to reignite this war on Yemen, which killed, oh, there's a shortage of reliable figures, but right. tens, probably perhaps hundreds of thousands, brought cholera back to the country or into the country, really laid waste to it. So, you know, that's a pretty glaring omission in the coverage. With regard to Gaza, I mean, you're right about the U.S. centric character of it. I mean, I mentioned the last New York Times op ed dealing with it. And that was December 10th. I think I might have said December 8th before, but it was called an aid package that invests in U.S. security goals. And so that's how U.S. aid to Israel, military aid to Israel, is framed in this piece as being part of security goals. It's quite explicit in the first two paragraphs that the authors of the editorial think it's, quote unquote, essential that Congress approve $14.3 billion in arms assistance to Israel, and it calls that a U.S. security goal. I mean, I don't know <laughs> how this is supposedly related to U.S. security with security in scare quotes. Yeah. Um, perhaps the editors are afraid that, you know, Americans are in danger of being treated by Palestinian doctors if Israel doesn't murder enough of them. But, you know, this uh, really speaks to what you said about the uh, U.S.-centric framing of it that, among other things, the primary concern here has to be not stopping this genocidal slaughter, but some really nebulous, unspecified U.S. security goals that supposedly are enhanced by slaughtering Palestinian children. Yeah. You know, and and I guess fitting with that um, U.S.-centered frame is another damaging failing of corporate journalism, which is this crude winners and losers frame about uh, international relations. And that makes international courts, um, truth and reconciliation councils, even the UN, all of the structures and devices that folks have created to address international conflict with something other than bombs and bloodshed. 
and then the attendant economies that are centered on military spending. In the news media, that's all kind of silly and performative and tangential to real life. Those things are not taken seriously. And I feel like that's going to come into play also with this International Court of Justice case. I think the two ways that international legal proceedings are portrayed when they target, on the rare occasions, we have to say, that they target the U.S.'s allies, primarily Israel, or in a couple of cases, historically, the U.S. itself, is either that they're a joke to not be taken seriously or some kind of unfair witch hunt, which is a, a big part of what we see in terms of the way that the ICJ uh, case against Israel is being uh, carried out, or the South African case, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other side, or the other related form of it, is that if it's not a joke, it's presented as like equivalent to the military warfare, right? Like as if that's kind of the real violence or somehow that's as bad as, uh, I mean, it's not bad at all. It's the alternative to violence, but it presented as, you know, attacking Israel as if prosecuting a state for severe human rights violations and violations of international law, potentially prosecuting it or suing it, I should say. Yeah. As if somehow that's comparable to Israel is doing with its actual attacks, you know, leveling hundreds of thousands of homes in Palestine, rendering the hospital system dysfunctional, blowing up every university in Gaza. These things are somehow used describing the same language at best, when we're lucky, as legal actions being pursued to try to stop those things. Right. Diplomacy is weakness, I think it's fair to say, in in corporate news media. It's kind of, you know, that's what Mm. you don't want to do. But then if it happens, then, yeah, you portray it as singling out and, and attacking particular powers. Part of being a media critic is attentiveness to language. Not Mm -hmm. just for its own sake, but because we know that words and phrases have weight and freight, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, You wrote for FAIR.org about the work done by the words that we're seeing, a battle between Israel and Hamas. This is a war between Israel and Hamas. What are you getting at there? And do you see other tropes or lazy language that trouble you? So to answer the first question, I would say what I'm getting at is that Essentially, when the media cover what's happening as being a Israel-Hamas war, it really kind of does Israel a favor by presenting its campaign as being much more narrowly targeted than it is in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, because that sounds to, I think, most people's ears like a war between a guerrilla army and a uh, state and its military, which is sort of going to sound more legitimate than the much more accurate ways that one might describe what's happening, such as Israel's war on Gaza, for example. I just simply don't think that it's at all reasonable to describe what's happening as an Israel-Hamas war when journalists based in Gaza, Palestinian journalists, when schools in Gaza, when hospitals, when UN refugee centers, when all of these places, not to mention residential homes, power generators, water sanitation systems, et cetera, et cetera, when all these things are destroyed. I mean, that's not a war against a guerrilla army. I think it packs a particular punch to the kind of American ear or the Western ear, it certainly works the same way in Canada, 
to describe what's happening as an Israel-Hamas war because Hamas has been thoroughly demonized in the media since it has existed. It's presented as nothing other than this irrational group of religious fanatics that's dedicated to violence for its own sake, comparable to, say, ISIS or al-Qaeda. And so for those reasons, it's going to sound to a lot of people, and it does sound to a lot of people like, well, you know, Israel is doing what it has to do because Mm -hmm. it has to take on these dangerous fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. And so the fact is that the Israel-Hamas framing doesn't exist in a vacuum. It has to be seen in terms of the way that Hamas has been covered quite simplistically over the course of its history. And in my estimation, in that context, the framing of Israel-Hamas war really kind of helps legitimize the war to at least certain sections of the public in the U.S. and Canada. But as you pointed out, that's far from the only linguistic problem that we've seen in media. And I can certainly give a couple examples of that if you'd like. Sure, absolutely. To keep going, since the very beginning, in fact, of this escalation since October 7th, we've had the invocation of self-defense to describe what Israel's doing. Mm -hmm. And that's quite ridiculous because, for one thing, that would only make sense if Palestinians initiated the violence, which is a logical impossibility when you're in a colonial situation. The colonial power initiates violence. That's how you establish colonial rule. And so this notion that Israel is defending itself relies on the preposterous assumption that the violence began on October 7th, when, um, as I wrote about for FAIR in the days after October 7th, there was immediate Israeli violence in the days leading up to October 7th, shooting protesters in Gaza, for example, pogroms across West Bank, Palestinian towns throughout 2023 up to that point, and certainly the siege that has been enacted for 16 to 17 years prior to October 7th, depending on how you measure it. So, I mean, a siege is an act of war, right? It's enforced through military means, through land, sea, and air. Israel can't be defending itself when it was the party that was carrying out mass violence since long before October 7th. Mm -hmm. That framing, though, has a way of legitimizing or at least making it sound legitimate what Israel is doing, because to people who are not, you know, immersed in this subject, who maybe have things to do with their time other than study uh, this or other international issues, it sounds reasonable. Like, well, they were attacked, they have to defend themselves. But that really evacuates what has happened of context. And, And I mean, you know, it also leaves really crucial longer term factors like, well, under international law, Israel is an occupying power, which means it does not have the right to defend itself against the population that it occupies. It only has responsibilities to ensure the well-being of that population and to end its occupation. Mm -hmm. So the notion that Israel has a a right to defend itself against the people that, that it occupies is legally quite, quite dubious. So this framing, which has been really central to the coverage, I think is ludicrously misleading and frankly propagandistic. So even say that, I'll take say the LA Times, which was the first major US paper to call for a ceasefire, but in a couple weeks into the war, it still said quite explicitly, 
quote, Israel has every right to use military force. And that just isn't true for the reasons that I've described. Um, It uh, does not have every right to use military force. It has every obligation to end its colonization of Palestinian lands. I did want to give you an opportunity for just any final thoughts. I was going to say, first of all, thank you very much. It seems like every generation sees a crisis that shakes their faith in news media. For some, Mm -hmm. it was Vietnam and the civil rights movement, and then they saw media vilification of protesters. Mm -hmm. For some, it was the Iraq war. You know, you march in the street with thousands of people. You go home. It's not on the news. Something on this scale with people saying, don't believe your lying eyes. And if you Mm -hmm. do, we'll try to get you fired. Media critics are being born today, is what I'm saying. And I just wondered, do you have any counsel, Professor, for these (laughs) people with these newly awakened concerns? Because we know that distrust in major news media doesn't necessarily lead folks to independent critical media literacy. It can go a lot of different ways. No, that's true. And sometimes in unhelpful directions. I would say contribute to and consume independent media, Mm -hmm. um, like FAIR and many other sources, because FAIR and the Palestinian issue, we can highlight Electronic Intifada or Mondo Weiss. Corporate media does not exist to provide the public with information to make democratic choices. It exists to make a profit for its shareholders and or its owners. Independent media can actually fulfill the democratic mission of helping enable the populace to be exposed to a much wider range of ideas and interpretations, as well as a much wider range of information itself. The short advice is, I don't want to say don't read conventional media at all, but certainly don't rely on it as the main source for your way of thinking about the world. I think You can find a lot of useful nuggets in there if you bring a prior understanding of the Mm -hmm. issue. Like there can still be useful information when it comes to having journalists on the ground in some cases, albeit not Gaza, for instance. Mm -hmm. But I think that the opinion and analysis is overwhelmingly useless at best. And frankly, the reporting is often so slanted that you need a scalpel and a magnifying glass to make sense of it. But that can be done if you are supplementing it heavily with independent media or reverse that and say, supplement your independent (laughs) media consumption with little bits of the useful nuggets that can be found through careful readings of commercial media. But I would say that I think that that's what's happening among younger people on Palestine. It's quite stunning to see the way that my students and other students on the campuses at which I teach think about this issue and compare it to 20 years ago when I was a student and how Palestine-Israel was understood then. That makes me feel quite optimistic. And the more energy, time, and money that can get put into that type of work, the better. Let's end on that note. We've been speaking with Greg Shupak. He teaches English and Media Studies at the University of Guelph Humber in Toronto. The book, The Wrong Story, Palestine, Israel, and the Media, is available from OR Books. Greg Shupak, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. (music) 
And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Riley Baer. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.